You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. All right, well, grab your Bible and join me in 2 Peter chapter 1. We started in this new series last week, taking a look at this much uh, often forgotten book of the Bible that uh, we believe to be... Uh, functioning basically as the last words of Peter, knowing that his end is very near. And what does he have to say to the uh, the church? And we have said that the, one of the main themes of uh, the book of Second Peter is tension. Uh, that there is a, uh, a tension that is right uh, as we read through Scripture, as we understand who God is, what God's about, and what our role in it, in it uh, that there are things that the Bible tell us that uh, seem to be uh, diametrically opposed to each other, uh, and so some people have claimed, "Well, see, look, the Bible is talking about uh, there's, you know, it contradicts itself." And we say, "No, the Bible is painting a picture for us of right tension, holding things uh, at a at a proper." Uh, level of, of pull against each other so that we don't run off into error, so that we don't uh, abuse what it is that God has taught us about. And so today we're going to be looking at the tension that God gives and we do. God gives and we do. What do you believe is the number one reason that non-believers, non-believing people look at Christians and reject the message of Jesus? What do you think the number one reason that non-believing people look at Christians and reject the message of Jesus? Anybody give me a venture? Hypocrisy. 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 That was a a low softball out there, right? (laughs) Hypocrisy. And specifically, if we get really technical with it, it is what we would call the hypocrisy of antinomianism. Meaning, the, the idea, that the her- what was literally a heresy of antinomianism, was the idea that Christianity was uh, functionally just a get-out-of-hell-free card. And once you became a Christian, once you had that as an identifying quality of who you were, the soul, the spirit was good, the flesh was bad, so it really, once you got Jesus, then it didn't matter how you lived beyond that because you had your fire insurance, you had your salvation, so your soul was saved, and from that point on, it really didn't matter how you lived. You could live as godless and pagan as you wanted to live so long as you knew Jesus. And the early church officially rejected that uh, in a very formal fashion, Uh, But practically speaking, a significant number of individuals have persisted in that through the last 2,000 years, believing that really my faith in Jesus uh, is a a bit of head information and that's all that it needs to be. How I live my life the rest of the time doesn't really matter. Uh, You do know though that uh, Jesus actually defines hypocrisy differently than we do. When we talk about the biblical sin of hypocrisy, Jesus doesn't actually define it the same way that we do. We define uh, hypocrisy as what? Saying one thing and doing another. That's how we define it. Jesus just calls that lying. 
That's, that's actually what Jesus calls it. Jesus defines hypocrisy as saying one thing and doing that one thing, but with a wrong motive. When Jesus taught on the issue of hypocrisy, and He said, don't be like the hypocrites, and He was pointing at the Pharisees, He said, who? Tell you to pray, right? And what is it that they're doing? They're praying. Why are they doing it? So that people would see them, right? Don't be like the hypocrites and give. What do they tell you to do? Give. What are they doing? They're giving. Why are they doing it? So that people would see them. Do you see the distinct difference? That's what Jesus defined hypocrisy as. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's a good uh, check for us in this because if we think hypocrisy is living one way and doing something differently, then we can slip into this subtle, uh, subtle, uh, subtle sin of doing good things for wrong motives. In other words, sometimes we think the, uh, you know, the end justifies the means kind of thing. My motivation behind it uh, is what's right. And the reality of that is that Jesus actually calls that sin for us. And so to look at hypocrisy as it, uh, as it uh, exists in the, the world in which uh, people are looking uh, out from outside into the church is to realize that what they're actually seeing is people not professing Jesus. That's what that actually is. And so God gives and accomplishes gospel transformation to us. That's what God does. God steps into our lives and changes us from the inside out. He changes our motives. Jesus was big on the issue of motives. It's The whole uh, Sermon on the Mount was Him uh, not just simply giving rules to follow, but remember He was saying uh, that your motivation behind why you obey these things actually matters, right? You have heard it was said, do not commit murder. And everybody's like, whoo, I'm good to go, man. I, never, you know, I ain't never killed nobody. And He says, but if you hate somebody in your heart, right, that's an internal thing. That's a motivation factor. Even if you don't act on it, he calls that sin. And so God gives us uh, gospel transformation. That's what God does is He changes our heart from the inside out. But what are we to do with that? Right? God gives, but He tells us that there's something that we're supposed to do. It's not just a, uh, He flips a light switch and then we're, we're free and clear. There's nothing else. God gives, we do. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3, go through verse 9. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with Love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten 
that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is the word of the Lord. God gives, we do. Why does God give? That's the first question that we got there. I'm going to skip my stuff there. Why does God give? Well, the first thing that Peter tells us is that God gives because of His divine power. In verse 3, it says, "...seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, it is no small thing that God actually can rescue us from our own self-destruction." Um, oftentimes, when uh, the world is um, uh, looking at us as Christians, uh, you know they they make the the accusation about hypocrisy as being the the number one reason. They you know if what you believe is true and you're not doing it, then I just can't believe that, right? But the other, I think, the second reason that people reject uh, cognitively the issues of Christianity is around the nature of evil, right? How can a good God allow evil to exist in the world? And what this is known as is the problem of evil. It is a, a, um, a theological and a philosophical argument that's been going on for a long time. It's not a new argument uh, as we think about those. Uh, and, of course, my, my big pushback on that is I say, okay, well, here, here's, the, here's the big part. Where, do, where does like evil originate from? From us, right? People do evil things. And so, to just simply reject God on the basis of humans' actions of evil seems to be a little bit odd to me. Uh, But the part that is so incredible to me about the nature of the Gospel is that what we see is that we see people actually stepping out of evil. We see God transforming people's hearts. We see God taking people uh, who were uh, evil by definition evil, and changing their heart to be people who love and serve Him and and love and serve their neighbor. And it is no small thing. So why does God give? Well, He gives because of His divine power, saying that He can. That He actually has the power to do so. And so God gives to us this gospel transformation, this change of heart uh, that He gives to us is no small thing, comes from His divine power. Power And secondly, uh, God gives because of His glory and His excellence. Do you see that everything that God does, God does for His glory. God does nothing in this world, nothing in all of creation, out of anything else other than His own glory. And of course, this seems a little bit odd to us because we're not God. Right? If all I ever did, if the motivation of everything that Chris Cobb ever did was for my glory, look at me. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at how amazing I am. Everybody would look at me and go, yeah, we're not listening to you. Right? Because that's not right for me to step into that kind of role. But we need to understand this about God, that there is nothing else that could be right for God to do. Before we get bent out of shape of this, it's only right that He does this. For Him to give His glory to anyone else or anything else would in a sense be idolatry. It is the acknowledgement of glory is highest worth, highest value. And He calls us because it delights Him to do so. It glorifies Him to draw us to Himself. 
God gives out of His very own nature. He gives because it brings Him glory to do so. It's what we were made for. We were made to delight and glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So what is it that God gives? That's the second thing. What is it that God gives? Well, He gives, verse 3 says, all things pertaining to life and godliness. All things in the Greek means all things. Everything. God gives us everything for life and godliness. Um... How many of you guys? Any of you guys have a water bottle that you like? Is your special water bottle, like that you just put stickers on and you carry everywhere? I know my boys. Yeah, see, Melissa's got one back there. Uh, there's this whole market that we've we've found as we've traveled for durable water bottle stickers. Like little micro businesses have popped up. People selling them on Etsy and all this kind of stuff. And, and it's kind of the new. I don't know if you'd say the new bumper sticker or the new. It's the new collectible thing, right? You go to places and you get a sticker and you put it on your, uh, you know, on your. Uh, your water bottle, and, and it tells the world, you know, how much of a world travel you are, and you know what your interests are, all those kind of things, right? Uh, these high dollar thermo flasks become a, a picture now of of who you are and your adventurous nature. Um, and the reality is, uh, there are a lot of people that treat their Christian walk like a sticker on the outside of their water bottle. It's just one more thing, right? I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a teacher, I'm a school administrator, uh, you know, I'm a runner, I'm a uh, hunter, uh, I'm a you know, homemaker, I'm a you know, whatever, and that's what I am. Oh, and I'm a Christian. There it is on the outside of it, right? But a life in God's grace isn't a sticker to the add to your life It's the tap into the wellspring of God Himself. Christianity is not something that we just label ourselves from on the outside that is another thing that we do. We go to basketball games, we drink coffee, and we go to church, and it's one of those things of our rhythm. It becomes literally the wellspring, the source that wells up inside of us. This is what Jesus described over and over and over again uh, when He described the wellspring of life that He would give into us, that He would be living water, that those that would drink of Him would never thirst again. That we would not have to chase after other things as stickers on the outside of our life to try to fill us up and satisfy us. He would be the source of that that then overflows into all of those other things that impacts every other aspect of our life. He is the defining quality of who we are. And the reality of this is that when we come to see God as having given us everything, for life and godliness, He becomes the source in which our water bottle never runs dry. Because I don't know about you, the more and more we chase the things that we put on stickers on the outside of our life, the drier and drier we become. And the reason for that is we try to make those things saviors. And I don't imagine, I don't care how great your spouse is, I don't care how great your kids are, I don't care how great your job is, they all make terrible saviors. I'm a terrible savior for Shell. And if she's running to me thinking that I'm her savior, 
her water bottle is going to run dry. So God gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Uh, Second, what does God give? He gives us His precious and very great promises. The poetic nature that Peter uses to describe this, he could have just said He gives us His promises, but Peter has to stop and quantify this. It's not just promises like, you know, maybe tomorrow we'll stop by the coffee shop and get a, a latte, right? That's a that's you know, that's maybe a promise. But these are not precious and very great. Promises are means by which we plan for the future. Right? That's what promises are. Uh, your employer made a promise to you to give you a paycheck. And so you make plans by buying goods, expecting that you'll be able to pay for those when your credit card bill comes, right? Those are promises that we make moving forward. We make promises to our spouse to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. We make promises to our employer, and they do to us as well. I'll work for you, you will pay me, right? When the dollar bill or the and the dollar bill that is in your wallet or in your bank account is itself a promise. Call them promissory notes, right? We as the United States government will do our best not to go bankrupt. So you can spend this dollar bill, right? Yeah. And none of us have any confidence in that anymore, right? But the reality of it is it's a promise, right? And promises are given so that we can make plans. That's that's what we do with promises. When promises are given, we act on those promises unless we don't believe the promise giver. Oh, no, no, I promise I'm going to do that. And you just go, man, you've let me down so many times. I'm I'm not going to, you know, oh, I promise I'll show up. And you're like, I'm going to plan like you're not, right? Because it's a a future-based reality that we're trying to build our lives on. God's promises are precious because they are both for now and for the life to come. God gives us a both and when it comes to His promises. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise that He gives, a distinct promise, and it is a promise for now, in this moment. And if you have uh, been in a place of deep crisis where you finally stopped running to everybody else and you turned to the Lord, you found that He was right there. That's His promise. And it is for the now. But there is also a promise that He gives for us that says there is coming a day I'm promising you where the separation that we experience now will be no more. Where we will hold Him. Where we will know Him. Where we won't see through a veil dimly. God's promises are both uh, for now and for the life to come. One of His promises is that all sin, all sin will be justly punished and completely removed. In our prayer time this morning, as we were talking about false accusations in the world in which we live, in which uh, you know the, uh, the the ideal of innocent until proven guilty almost doesn't exist anymore, right? It's just all we need to do is make say something uh, in a public sector, say something on social media, and you're presumed guilty, and now it's your responsibility to try to prove yourself innocent. 
And we go, God, that's not fair. This world isn't fair. And here's the promise of God. All sin, whether it is sin that we are guilty of or sin that is, uh, others are guilty of committing against us, all of it will be justly paid and completely removed. Either justly paid in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or justly paid by us as we spend an eternity in hell having rejected God and His free gift of grace. There is no sin that will go unpunished. Nobody gets away with it. The other aspect of that is that uh, in the now, remember we said that God's promises are for now and the life to come. In the now, we are experiencing the reality that God has freed us from the penalty of sin. As believers, we believe that Jesus has paid the penalty of our rebellion, our hatred of God, and our rejection of Him. We are freed from the penalty of sin, and we are being freed from the power of sin in our lives. As we walk with Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to be able to identify the sin that is in our life and to overcome it and have the power of sin break in our life. But the final aspect of that promise around it, as it comes around sin is that one day we will will be freed from the presence of sin. That there will come a day where we don't have to struggle with it anymore. And we won't have to fear being sinned against by others. All sin, the promise is, precious and glorious will be punished justly and completely removed. Another promise is about all tears. All tears, he says, will be counted. All tears will be seen. All tears will be unwasted. And he says, will be wiped away. That is a very great and precious promise to believers that are walking in the truth of who God is. All ailments. Anybody wake up stiff, sore? Things weren't working the way they were supposed to this morning? All ailments healed. All things imperfect made complete. All things hopeless given eternal purpose. Do you see why Peter had to say the precious and very great promises? Every government, every nonprofit, every system, every organization is trying to accomplish these, and they can't promise that they can do it. But God can. These are precious and very great promises that we get to walk in, and God gives us these promises. Why? What did we say promises were? They were the ability to plan and move forward. God has given us these promises. We can live knowing they're true. We can forgive people that sin against us knowing that justice is coming. I don't have to make justice happen. We can live with the ache of the moment because the promise is restoration in the kingdom. Verse 4, what does God give? He gives us a way of escape. A way of escape from the corruption of this world. Verse 4, he says, By these 
or for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Some people uh, have argued that Christianity is a crutch, an escape from reality. Uh, And there have been movements throughout Christianity that have uh, encouraged that in people. Uh, The monastic movements and things like that to try to get away from the world and cloister yourself up into a, a holy huddle, if you will, to try to protect yourself away from those things. And it was a misunderstanding of the reality of this. When Jesus in John chapter 17 gave that high priestly prayer where He was praying for His disciples of His day and then He prays for you and for me, those that would believe the message of His disciples as they were to come. His prayer for them was that uh, God would not take them out of the world but would save them from it. That they would live in the midst of it uh, unscathed by this world. And God has given us escape from the corruption of this world because He's identified to us our lusts, the the things of this world uh, that we are affixing our affections on that are not Him and that are not of Him. A misdirection, if you will, of what God has for us. He's given us a way of escape from this corrupt world. It's one thing to spend all of your time hoping for heaven. Right? We could live our lives as Christians just always going, man, heaven's going to be so much better. And let's just sit around and we'll just talk about heaven and that's all that we'll ever do. Uh, but it's another thing to embrace the promises of God now and begin to see the gospel break you free from the world's corruption. To embrace the promises of God is to believe Him, to believe His, uh, His goodness, to believe His plan, to believe His power in our lives, and to live believing Him. Believing that what He said is best for us actually is best for us. How does God give? How does God give? Well, verse 3 and verse 8 make it very, very clear to us. In verse 3 he says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Knowledge. If you ever want to know how is it that the Christian life uh, changes us, is it some incantation? Is it some you know uh, you know weirdness of you know divine downloading into your spirit? Any of those kind of things? Peter makes it absolutely clear here. How does his divine power give us everything for life and godliness through true knowledge? And then in verse eight. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough to be spiritual. That's become the new buzzword, right? Christianity has such connotations to it that people are like, well, people are going to look at me and if I say that I'm a Christian, they're going to be like, ah, yeah, you're probably one of them hypocrites, right? We already established that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, 
right? This kind of stepping back, stepping away from this. And it's not enough to believe in God. It is Jesus specifically who saves us. It's Jesus who forgives. It's Jesus who heals. It's Jesus who rules. And it is Jesus who shows us the divine power to live godly lives. Apart from Him, we have no hope. Knowledge of Him is not simply knowing about Him, but actually knowing Him. A a personal relationship, a, a personal walk. If you really want to see how somebody is spiritually doing, you just ought to ask the question, what have you heard from Jesus lately? What have you heard from Jesus lately? Because the reality of that is, He is speaking. He speaks to us through His Word. And He speaks to us through His Word in strange ways. One of the richest times in my life uh, of God's Word, where it was just like every single word was just like God was shouting to me, was when I was actually I was in high school, and uh, it was one of those where I you know was really convicted, like man, I really need to I need to be really diligent about having a quiet time and and start reading in this. And so I was like, you know, I didn't know where I was going to start. Right, I was going to start at the beginning. I was going to do the thing, you know, go to John. What was I going to do? And I was just like, oh, the heck with it. Open the Bible, lay it open, put your finger on the top of it, and it was in Second Kings. 2 Kings is not a devotional book, just so you're just so you're aware of it. There's not like these, you know, nice, rich, you know, just you know, thing. It's it's story, it's narrative, it's the and as I began to read, narrative, right? Biblical narrative. So and so did this, and they said this, and this happened, and the king did this, and he rebelled in this way, all these kind of things go on. God was speaking. And as I'm reading through the story of it, I'm seeing these people from, that have been dead for thousands of years, and I'm seeing them walk through. Some of them are listening to God doing what He's saying. Others are not listening to God and rebelling against Him. And in the midst of it, I'm sitting here hearing God say, are you hearing this? And it was just, it was mind-blowing to me. It was one of those where I was just like, it's living. It's God speaking. It's Jesus convicting me of my own sin. It's God correcting the course of my life. Oftentimes when I pray, I begin to pray by saying, God, help me to pray for the things that I ought to pray for, not just the things that I want to pray for. And what I do is then in the midst of that, as I'm praying, I begin to search my mind and search my heart and I feel like the Holy Spirit leads me in things that I ought to be passionate about. He brings people to my mind and I say, God, okay, let me pray for them. What can I be praying for about that? He brings situations to my mind and I I begin to correct ways in which I may be feeling about situations, right? I think about, uh, you know, as I pray for the government and oftentimes as I'm praying for things and I... Uh, and uh, I have to stop and ask the question, is my, my own political motivations, is that leaning the way in which I'm praying, rather than just saying, God, these are sinners that need to know You, regardless of what, their, what letter comes after the end of their name, uh, would I treat them as such if they were standing in front of me and it changes the way that I pray for them? Right? Rather than, are, are they going to bring the most bread and games that I would enjoy? 
because we really all view them as Caesar to us. That's what we think of them. Just make us happy. Knowledge of Him is not just simply knowing about Him, but it's actually knowing Him. What is He like? What does He feel? What motivates Him? What angers Him? You see, verse 3 tells us the way in which the divine power actually grants to us all things pertaining to life and godliness is by the knowledge of Him. Knowing Him. Not knowing about Him, but knowing Him. Knowing His heart for me. Knowing Him in the same way that I know the people that I walk with uh, throughout life. My wife, my kids, my friends, my neighbors. As we go through life, we're called to know Jesus that kind of way. But knowing about Him isn't enough. It's important to know that God, what God calls us to do. Jesus in the Great Commission did not say, go and teach them all things I've commanded. He said, go and teach them to obey all things I've commanded. God gives us His great and precious promises. It should change the way that we live. We should want to do something different. What do we do? That's the tension. The, the tension. God gives, what do we do? Peter gives for us what we would call a chain of virtues. Paul does this a lot in his writings in well, or as well, uh, where he'll say, uh, and with this, then this, and this, then this, right? And he just links them all together. It's not a succession of events like you have to master this one before you can move to the next one. It's a chain that's all linked together. Uh, this chain of virtues is kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice I said the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. There's just one fruit of the Spirit and it manifests itself in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It, it wells up in us the reality of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life. And as we think about this chain of virtues, they're all linked together. They're, they're, they're all a part uh, of what it is that we're called to do. Uh, it's one fruit with many virtues. Here, Peter tells us to bend our will. Specifically, uh, there he says, um, Now for this very reason, or reason also, apply all diligence. He says, if you're going to work at something, work at this, Christian. Bend your will, express all your effort to grow in godly virtue. This is not legalistic. This is not him saying, God will love you more if you do this. God will be more pleased with you. You'll be more special in God's eyes if you accomplish these things. This is also not a moralistic fashion, but it is a right response to the true knowledge of who Jesus is. As we put on faith, true trust. Remember we said the promises are a, uh, something that we are resting upon a future event. Our faith rests upon His fulfillment of His promises. I remember listening to somebody, uh, we were talking at one point in time, uh, with, actually it was a volunteer this summer, and, uh, and I made the point of saying, you know, when, when it comes to faith in Jesus, if Jesus is not enough, we're in trouble. Right? If Jesus isn't enough, 
we're in trouble. And he made the statement, he says, well, even if, you know, even if the gospel isn't true, even if Jesus is real, Christianity has made my life better. And I said, not mine. Because if that's the case, then I just tried to live a moralistic life. And the end is nothing. My hope, my faith, is not on a better life. My faith is in Jesus Christ alone. So if life throws every curveball at me and everything stinks, everything falls apart, my hope doesn't change. Because my hope wasn't in a better life. My hope was in Jesus. So when it comes to faith, as I rest upon His great and precious promises, He says, as you add to faith, as you work at your faith, as you begin to press into believing Him, put on moral excellence or virtue, goodness. The fruit of the Spirit, as it were, in this. And as you press into that uh, wanting to be more patient, wanting to be more forgiving, wanting to be more gentle, wanting to be more loving, those kind of virtues, wanting to have more courage, wanting to have a greater boldness, as you press into those, grow in knowledge. Learn more. And as you learn more, learn to be self-controlled. Don't just have the information, but act on it. And, and when the... When the uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> One of the true signs of true knowledge is knowing when not to say anything. Right? If you're ever in a Bible study or ever talking with somebody and they ask you a theological question and you don't know the answer to it, do you know what the most spiritually correct way to answer that is? I don't know. Right? Because otherwise it becomes spiritual pride. Well, I just need to make it up because you're going to think I'm, you know, stupid if I don't know the answer for it. So be self-control. And in your self-control grow in steadfastness. Immovability. Don't back down from the truths of the promises of God. And as you grow in steadfastness, godliness. Looking more and more and more like God intended for you to look. And as you grow in godliness, brotherly affection. Tenderness towards your fellow man. And then ultimately love. Agape, God kind of love. The kind of love that the world itself cannot produce. In verse 8, he concludes with this. He says, For if these qualities, these virtues, this chain of what it is that we are to grow in, if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective and useless. I don't know about you. I don't want to be useless. I don't want to be ineffective. I don't have to be the most important person in the world. But by golly, when I finish the end of my life, I don't want to look back at it and say, well, that was pointless. Right? Peter tells us, how do we get to the end and not be ineffective, not be unfruitful. He says, if you are growing in these things, if these qualities in you are increasing, 
then you will not be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If someone from the outside of the faith catches you in the world's definition of hypocrisy, because here's the funny thing, they won't catch you in Jesus' definition of hypocrisy. Only the Holy Spirit catches you in that. Only you know your motivation. Right? But if the world catches you in the worldly definition of hypocrisy, then what are we to do? We are to believe what it is that God gives. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, when we don't deserve it. And to acknowledge our sinfulness and grow in the knowledge of Jesus. To do what it is that He calls us to do. Believe and repent. Christian, you never outgrow your need for belief and repentance. It's belief and repentance that brings faith into our life. It is what if it is that literally faith is a coin with two sides, belief and repentance. You never have the coin of faith without belief and repentance. And we walk every single day as a, as a follower of Jesus, learning to believe Him more, trust His, His precious and magnificent promises more and more and more, and to step into those in repentance choosing not to live the way that the world calls us to, but to live the way that God calls us to. Why? Because we don't want Christianity just to be another sticker on our life that we can interchange with anything else. Christianity is the wellspring that makes sure that we never run dry. The fact that we've tapped in to the source. We need to live in a right tension that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And He calls us to do what nobody else can do for us. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that it is uh, true. That we can rest our whole beings on it. And God, this morning as we dwell by Your Holy Spirit on Your precious and magnificent promises, help us to live our lives with a future hope that is unshakable by the lusts of this world, that we would grow in these this chain of virtues. And Jesus, that we would know you more. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.